Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Elspeth Heeman, the co-editor of Who Pays for Canada, Taxes and Fairness in Canada, recently published by McGill-Queens University Press, and the sole author of Tax, Order and Good Government, A New Political History of Canada, 1867 to 1917. Elspeth is Professor of History at McGill University. Her Tax, Order and Good Government book explored the nature of the Canadian state and questions of wealth and poverty from Confederation to the wartime income tax of 1917. This was in fact the first time that such a tax was introduced in Canada. This book won the Sir John A. Macdonald Prize the Canada Prize in Humanities and Social Sciences by the Federation of Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Book Prize of the Political History Group of the Canadian Historical Association. Who Pays for Canada, the other book we're going to discuss today, is co-edited with David Tuff and follows up on some of the themes in her earlier book. Elspeth, welcome to Witness to Yesterday and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Taxes have rarely been of interest to uh, Canadian historians, at least until recently. What first got you interested in this subject? What got me interested in the subject was a telephone call from Shirley Tillotson, a professor in Dalhousie University, with whom I had crossed paths uh, in the past, and she was developing a big new project on the cultural history of taxation and invited me in. I was not at that point uh, at all persuaded that taxes were interesting, but I thought that Shirley was interesting, and I thought it would be a lot of fun to take on something like that. I hadn't done a group project in that way before. Um, but it also enabled me to revisit a question that um, had puzzled me, and and that was sort of thinking about the Canada of John A. Macdonald, not so much the kind of biographical approach that has tended to dominate the historiography, but what do we think about the Macdonaldian state, right? How did it work as a kind of institution or set of institutions in relationship between this guy, who was so long the head of the Canadian state, and the state institutions itself, and public opinion, and how, time and time again, a very complicated, rich, um, diverse world of British North America and early Canada had a kind of conservative punchline in yet another election for John A. Macdonald. So I wanted to understand uh, what his political formula was, and it seemed to me that taxes were one good way to get into that question. But you define taxes as compulsory payments to an established authority. Can you explain your argument here that taxes speak to the most essential questions of political and legal legitimacy? Why is this so? That is so because taxes have been one of the key ways in which voters um, have, and their elect, the people they elect, have disciplined executive prerogative. It's in the Magna Carta, right? You don't get to take people's property without their consent. That's how the prince got tamed, was through tax disputes. And if the king wanted money, he had to make concessions to the public. So again and again and again, we see um, the crown's powers being reduced around his desire to get more money. And parliament, of course, being the place he goes to to ask for money and becomes the representative of uh, political voice and agency. And uh, Canadians developed that model as well, the British model. It's not just the British model, but it's a very, very, you know, uh, hardwired uh, model. And and uh, so 
to my mind, a lot of the most interesting and important political conversations and a lot of the institutional development occur at that interface between uh, the taxpayer and the tax collecting state. And I do think it's quite possibly the best place to see the relationship between consent and coercion at any given time and place. Um, that's a complicated question. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways that, um, you know, we see very, very blatant coercion in very many different ways. It's hard to understand, however, where consent becomes coercion and vice versa. Uh, the British state is very, very good at reading consent into fundamentally coercive relationships. But taxes seem to be a place where there's you can kind of see the to and fro. And the second thing about taxes that makes them really good for this kind of conversation and also, therefore, this kind of historical analysis is that there's money involved with genuine measures. It, you can tell whether or not, for example, somebody is corrupt. You can tell who's paying the most taxes. You can follow the fiscal transfers. It's not that all tax conversations are very well um Established, proved with the evidence, but nonetheless, it is one of the best places for producing evidence about the way you were governed and how much say you have in it and who benefits and who does not. Well, it does make a difference when you can follow the money. And uh, in your new edited book, you actually entitle your chapter Jealousy of Taxes. And it starts with David Hume because it's David Hume's term. Uh, why is that? a useful entry point to Canada's fiscal history. Well, in this case, I'm really writing on the coattails of Istvan Hunt, uh, who wrote a great book of essays, Jealousy of Trade. He took key phrase from Hume and embedded it in a much larger discussion of how arguments about politics and how arguments about economics developed in the 18th century. Um, and Hume is kind of, you know, part of that bigger story. But I saw something really interesting in that claim that I thought could apply to Canada. And the reason that it applies so beautifully to Canada is because Hume is writing at exactly the same time Canada is being conquered by the British, and they're trying to think about how to govern this place. And Hume makes some claims that are particularly interesting and particularly useful two legislators who are actually making these key decisions at the moment. Um, for example, I would argue Hume is written into the Royal Proclamation. Um, so the two things that Hume says that I think are so interesting for my story, the, you know, that I, you know, a very, very selective account of Hume, um, is uh, on the one hand that all rule is ruled by opinion. Uh, in every place that you look, a minority rules over a majority. So because that's the case, it's never simply coercion. There's always an element of opinion and persuasion. And Hume says all rule ultimately is by opinion. Even in a police state, you still have to persuade the soldiers and the police. And uh, that's really true of, of uh, British North America, because the British really do have to appeal to opinion to get people on board to agree to accept them. They do not outnumber the non-British subjects or, you know, or the officials, um, the British officials. So they have to have a persuasion project for Canada to govern it. And secondly, the great Hume argument about jealousy of trade is he says, don't import political jealousies into economic relationships. Don't have trade wars. There's no need to have trade wars. That commercial sociability and uh, comparative benefit will enable all countries to prosper together. Political rivalry, you know, you might have political rivalries, but economically, everybody can benefit from trade. A wealthy England should not at all be jealous that Scotland is becoming less impoverished 
flourished from its economic relationship with Britain. And even, he says, even France, you know, the more that France benefits from trading with Britain, the more Britain benefits by having a wealthy neighbor, because this is good for everybody, good for trade, good for national wealth. Now, it's not an unambiguously true, you know, it's a complicated argument. I wouldn't say it's true all times and places, but what it does is it gives a good critique of jealousy uh, of uh, state capture. So this is great for British rule of Canada because, as I say, the British are outnumbered, but also because it suggests you can ignore political boundaries. You can ignore them on the continent as a whole. You can ignore, ignore the um, diversity within the new British North America, which is, you know, still being figured out what it is, includes Rupert's Land, etc. But the idea Idea that uh, there can be all these complicated, diverse uh, indigenous nations, and you don't have to, you know, form political treaties with them one by one if you can form trading relationships, right? That the trade can be the way that Britain brings uh, all the different people in British North America into its ambit. And as well, Hume is reasoning this rich country, poor country logic that Hume applies to Scotland and England can apply to Canada, partly as a colony like Scotland to say, you know, treat, treat Canada well. Don't just pull money out of it, but treat it as a commercial, you know, uh, friend, <laughs> so to speak. But it also works on a continent dominated by the United States. Scotland is to England as Canada is to the United States. And uh, the goal for Canadians is again and again to persuade the Americans that they can have a, a good trading relationship uh, without, you know, conquest or something like that. No need to conquer Canada. You can just trade with us instead. Um, so that's the jealousy of trade that I think is really important. But I apply it to say that um, you can carry the freedom argument. You know, Hume is saying there's a choice being made to be made between freer trade, economic liberalism, and jealousy. But I say that if you carry the argument far enough for liberalism, you can take it all the way to domination. That the slave owner's freedom, for example, is a very jealous freedom, even though it used perfectly the language of 18th century enlightenment, liberty and property, um, plus the language of civilization. And we can trace historically the logic of the slave owner into modern arguments that uh, the state has no right to take a penny from a wealthy business person. That's that's been established in the work of Robin Einhorn, for example, who does this kind of analysis of, you know, how the Americans constructed their language of liberty uh, in the uh, 1780s. It's been taken forward by various historians of uh, economic liberal theory in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century. And um, it has to be said, Hume himself cedes much too much to slavery in his own economic arguments. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I do think, you know, I would carry it forward to say that there's something fundamentally unhuman about the, you know, contradictory to the anti-jealousy argument in someone who says, I don't owe the world a single penny of taxes, not even one penny. Um, it flies in the face of the kind of arguments made for mutual benefit by Smith and Hume. It flies in the face of the early arguments for political economy. And uh, it's upheld by some economists who display a kind of intellectual jealousy. So I am kind of uh, riding Ist Van Haan's coattails, but also trying to take it into a new area. Well, in pre-Confederation colonial Canada, everybody seemed to be paying taxes through consumption taxes. They were very much part of uh, pre-Confederation life. This is the opposite of the case in Britain. Why was this so? Consumption taxes were a very big deal in uh, Britain during the colonial period as well. Um, before 1851, they never fell below 50% of taxation revenue. Um, 
they were fiercely debated because they are under, it's understood that they are regressive. That, that is, they, they, um, hit the poor harder than they hit the rich. They, and, uh, they tend towards, um, you know, the kind of, uh, state capture that Smith and Hume are really very critical of. And that makes them particularly vulnerable during hard times, though. And so in, in Britain, in the 1840s, we see uh, Robert Peel and uh, Gladstone bringing in a income tax to to supplement, not to replace uh, the uh, consumption taxes, but to supplement them. And in part because poverty in Ireland is becoming so dire. But income tax in the 1840s uh, in Britain, according to Martin Daunton, is a way for liberal conservative politicians to, quote, shackle the state. He, he argues that they link income, the payment of income tax to the vote. And that way you get to check both democratization and state spending. Okay. You're reining in both those two forces that are kind of fundamentally not conservative. Um, and Gladstone is making a slow transition from being a high Tory to being a kind of Gladstonian liberal all during this period. Canada is very different from Britain. Um, there's a lot less liberalism running the show, right? If you look again at the 19th century, the conservatives are running Canadian policy most of the time. McDonald isn't, Johnny McDonald is in many respects Gladstone's counterpart. He looks a lot more like Peel than Gladstone as a long running statesman. Now, McDonald knows that consumption taxes are regressive, but he does not want an income taxing state that can look at people and say, okay, how much do you owe? Tell, or how much do you own? Tell me how wealthy you are and I will figure out how much you owe to other people. He doesn't like that kind of an intrusive, um, knowledgeable state. I think he you know, he's a, he's an outlier. If you look at 19th century politics in that he prefers to do things with party that other prominent statesmen do with the state. Um, party for him is, uh, something he's always trying to enlarge. He's always trying to make his party as broad based as possible, but he likes to have things be as informal as possible. He says the great thing about consumption taxes is people get to choose how much they pay. They buy something. And uh, nobody's coming around marching onto their land saying, okay, I'll take that and that and that. So he, he kind of wants a more old-fashioned state, and he wants a state that is more insulated from the public in some respects. But it's worth noting that the British and the Canadian conversations around taxes are always very closely intertwined, and they affect one another. There's a, there's a historian, um, uh, Anthony Howe, who says the beginnings of the, the abandonment of kind of Gladstonian and Peel's economic liberalism um, really starts in 1859 with uh, Galt's tariff, uh, protectionist tariff, of 18, I mean, semi-protectionist. He said it was really just revenue, but in fact, he was smuggling in um, protective duties. Uh, and uh, Howe says uh, this sets off alarm bells in England. It provokes Americans to put up their tariff in retaliation, and that this is the beginning of the cycle that will effectively lead to World War One. But I do think that the British and the uh, the Canadian aren't really all that far apart in the end. There's still always consumption taxes, even though they do go down after income tax is introduced. Well, thanks for that clarification. In terms of your uh, book, Trade Order and Good Government. You note that Canada was quite slow in modernizing its tax system, and you alluded to that just a few minutes ago. Um, and this book gave you the opportunity to explain what you call the origins of the modernization of the Canadian state, and particularly the tax state. Was the First World War the watershed in terms of this major move 
uh, or change? Well, I do tend to say that it was, that the kind of McDonaldian state is uh, powerfully uh, rebuffed. They choose a state that can look at how much people owe, uh, how much they own and how much they owe. But in fact, I don't really provide the evidence because I don't do the post-World War I era. I don't do the post-income tax era. Uh, Shirley Tillotson, when she phoned me up, said, well, how about you do the period before 1917 and I do the period afterwards? So she decided it was a watershed. I fell in with it. Um, I don't think either of us are actually in a position to really answer your question thoroughly because we already assumed it was. Um, a new study might find something very different, of course. And David Tuff does actually do a study of both before and after. He's also got a book uh, on income tax, uh, as well as this collection of essays. And he says you can really see that it, it transforms political discourse in Canada. Well, you described three main inflection points in Canada between 1867 and 1917. The first, of course, is Confederation. The next is the national policy of tariff protection in 1879. And then the Income War Tax Act of 1917. Can you briefly describe uh, John A. Macdonald's quasi-imperial project that covers off the first two inflection points uh, and then the grassroots tax revolt against it and why this revolt culminates in the Income War Tax Act. Okay, well, I've, I've kind of partly explained Johnny McDonald's logic a little bit already. Um, my argument is in uh, con in the tax order and good government is that Confederation might well be seen as a kind of constitutionalized austerity project, a bit like the New Poor Law of 1834. It's supposed to deal with complaints from English Canada and Protestant Canada and uh, sort of standard bearers of that, like George Brown, who from that point of the Galt Tax of 1859 say, holy cow, you're really spending a lot of money and you're spending, you're taking wealth from English Canada and transferring it to French Canada. Um, and uh, so he, according to the historians, basically makes uh, the union of the Canadas ungovernable, and there's going to have to be some kind of a reform. Uh, the question is, do you, do you bigger Canada or do you shrink it? And uh, they decide that they can make it bigger, bring in the Maritimes, and um, essentially use the Maritimes as switch hitters, switch voters to decide who to side with, Ontario or Quebec and break the deadlock between them. But in the process of writing that new constitution, I argue MacDonald creates a government focused on wealth and able to ignore poverty. It, it downgrades poverty to lower levels of government, and he can simply ignore it. Um, and uh, at the same time, he says that in the process of doing this, we will cap our fiscal transfers. There won't be subsidies of greater than 80 cents a head. And of course, as uh, you know better than I do, he completely breaks with that and uh, maintains the subsidies and increases them as he wants, more or less. So we get uh, the beginnings of this quintessential Canadian federalism. You don't have to do what the federal government tells you to do, but they will make it worth your while to do so. And I do think that it is that kind of a formula that hands wealth to the federal government um, that gives us the kind of welfare Medicare equalization programs, arguably, in the long run. Um, as and, and they are fights about money in Canada rather than fights about power. I think they're more about power in the United States. And it turns out that money is kind of a better thing to argue about in some respects. Um, 
So uh, the carrying it on to the national uh, policy of tariff protection, he ramps it up. He increases it. He rides his way into power, saying, I'm going to, you know, bigger the federal government's income. I'm going to put up more taxes. Um, again, he, he knows that this is problematic from an economically liberal point of view, but it's the threat from the United States of Americanization that if you don't have a tariff, you will Americanize Canada by economic forces that enables him to get away with it. He still gets huge criticisms all the time from the liberals, but they don't really have a response to that argument. Um, and uh, when the liberals come into power, they, they just find it too lucrative to want to repudiate. They stick with it. And then, of course, when they decide, well, maybe we should lower the tariff, uh, the Tories ride into power again on an economic nationalist argument in 1911. But then when we get war in 1914, the government is really ill-equipped. Just about every other government around, you know, the Allies has already got an income tax and they increase it. They increase it in order to distribute more fairly the burden of war. And this goes back to the kinds of things that Adam Smith says and the early arguments for even the, even the critics um, of income tax, you know, the, the British liberals realize that it's a way of saying you have to have pay-as-you-go war taxes. And you're doing this as an incentive against um, warfare by creating high income taxes. You give, uh, you kind of create a disincentive for war, so to speak. And uh, the, the Tories can't do that in Canada, the, the Conservative government. They've only got this incredibly regressive tariff, which is making it harder and harder for everybody to buy food at times when there's actual real food shortages, because the British need Canada's food uh, very badly. Um, so they're really stuck, uh, but uh, but uh, the, the country is kind of too much in, in thrall to Toronto finance interests. And the Liberals managed to make a really powerful critique of uh, demand for reform, demand for income tax, but they're doing it at the head of an alliance that looks like it might introduce far more radical taxes than just an income tax, right? They, there's a lot of people that are demanding capital taxes in Canada, peculiarly strong movement for uh, for the single tax, which is uh, tax on uh, land value. And uh, I suggested uh, that the, um, the Tories ran scared, uh, and on the one hand, they introduced income tax in order to bring in the liberals, uh, the, the wavering liberals who did not want to run against a uh, patriotic war government. Um, but they also did it at a time when they were so worried that the debts they had racked up were so unsustainable, you know, in part because they don't have a proper tax system, that the whole thing might collapse. The government, the Tory party might go down, and they're worried if the Tory party goes down, maybe the Canadian state is going to go down too. Maybe the international war effort were followed just because they are so indebted and they're worried about radicals taking over instead. So I argue that income tax is actually uh, a kind of conservative move done to ward off more drastic taxation. So I often describe Canada as a highly decentralized federation. However, I have to qualify this by saying that power in this federation is concentrated in the provinces and that Canada has among the weakest municipal local government level in the world. Does this view accord with your history of fiscal federalism and tax order and good government? I 
would uh, argue that, um, you know, decentralization on the one hand tends to be checked by fiscal centralization. As I say, we have a government that can afford to buy off protest and persuade people to fall in with it. That's a very powerful, um, useful way of, you know, maintaining national conversations, even amidst all this decentralization. Uh, again, you, you can speak to this much better than I can, and I'd be delighted to hear you push against me. Um, but uh, I also think that if you look here today um, at the politics we're seeing around something like the, the epidemic, it's kind of clear that the provinces are, are quite weak. They're afraid of overreaching themselves. They don't have enough um, purchase on the ground to get the policies, and not all of them, some of them stronger than others, right? Um, but that I, I think that in many respects, cities are looking more legitimate than other governments in being able to say, okay, we're going to have a mask mandate, or we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And uh, I th these are police power questions. Um, police power is quite important in many respects. It's especially important during something like an epidemic. And I wouldn't push it too far. I do think prov provinces are you know, fundamentally empowered by their relationship with the education and medicine and things like that. Um, but nonetheless, if you're thinking about how, how we get um, a mandate for the state to make certain kinds of choices, the, the constituencies, the jurisdictions that are the most in touch with local, with public opinion, I would suggest, are the ones that are able to uh, leverage that public opinion. You know, the cities, I argue in the book, were given the, the worst possible taxing powers, the least popular ones, direct taxes, and that they forged a certain kind of legitimacy for the state out of that power. They had face-to-face -face conversations. They got a public mandate to create an administrative state that could do things like, you know, roads and sewers. And, you know, there's all sorts of things you want your city government to do. And we quote uh, Ralph Fenchie in the, in, the, um, in the book, saying, you know, city government's matter a lot more than anybody else. I think that's always and still true. And I think that uh, there's a way in which if you just look at the federal government and, and if you do studies of, uh, you know, policies at the federal level, you lose the sense in which public opinion ultimately is the beginning as well as the end of the conversation. And I was certainly thinking of the one dimension, which is the, the very weak uh, and restrictive fiscal powers of local government in this, but I certainly appreciate what you say in terms of legitimacy, and uh, that's the opposite side of the coin, uh, and it's rooted in other factors. But can you tell me the ways in which a political history of taxation like this helps us think about the politics of tax fairness from a contemporary policy perspective? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm not really all that attuned into, uh, you know, I am a kind of a 19th century Canadian specialist, but um, I think politics is important. Uh, econo you know, there's lots of economic history of taxes, and economics is always, you know, very, very hardwired in the cause and the effect of tax policies, but nonetheless, the choice as to what tax you're going to have is always a political question. So it has to be done as politics as well. And it has to be, I think, brought into this uh, larger conversation with public opinion. Now, you know, I really think Hume is right that the state, you know, that the state takes its mandate from the public. But uh, history in particular as a, uh, as a discipline in terms of the, that conversation, not just politics, but history, um, 
I draw a comparison to responsible government uh, in uh, Who Pays for Canada, David Tuff and I. Um, the, the Conservatives, the governing Tories in 1849, really thought they had to be accountable to nobody but themselves. And history proved them wrong. The public, the reformers proved them wrong. They said, you can't do it that way. You have to be accountable to us. And I do think that financiers need to learn that lesson. I think, I think we have a finance problem that it is under-regulated, and it is offshoring its wealth. It is draining it from Canada and other communities around the world. And the financiers think they need be accountable to nobody but themselves, and we have to prove them wrong again. And the only way you can do that is you have to tell a story. You have to tell a story about experience and about how people did this in the past. What did Gustav Myers do when he wanted to bring American progressivism to Canada? He wrote something called The History of Wealth in Canada. And there's a way in which that I think history, and this is really very much the argument in Who Pays for Canada, that uh, history is popular as well as academic. I think it's always been the most important mediator between academe, the state, and public opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, I think universities that don't support history departments are, uh, are uh, weakening themselves, and uh, we need to see. Uh, popular history, academic history lined up, uh, historians alongside uh, history-minded economists and, you know, people like yourself who've done most, both history and economics. And I'm also thinking, of course, as somebody like Thomas Piketty, who shows us the patterns over time with the numbers. Again, you want the data, you want to prove what's happening to the money, where it goes, um, and uh, teach people where the fight is and how to fight it. I think you need the facts, you need the public opinion, and those are the kinds of things I'm hoping to show acting in the past and to appeal to in the present. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today was Elspeth Heeman. She is the author of Tax, Order, and Good Government, A New Political History of Canada, 1867 to 1917, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2017, and co-editor with David Tuff of Who Pays for Canada? Taxes and Fairness in Canada, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on December 4th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.